You're listening to Brains On, where we're serious about being curious. Brains On is supported in part by a grant from the National Science Foundation. Did you disarm the security system? Yep. And the museum guard? Switched his coffee to decaf. He's out like a light. And the dogs? Gave him a laptop full of squirrel videos. They're good. What? I mean, it's mostly stuff I shot myself, but I tried to do some interesting things with the camera angles, and I think it turned out pretty... Gave the dogs homemade videos? Well, I told them they can log into my Netflix account if they get bored, but I think they're into the squirrel content, so... Fine. Whatever. As long as they're occupied. Now, how we get this diamond out of this case? Random thought. Why don't we take that painting instead? I think it would match our rug. We're not here for a painting. It's just, our living room really needs a conversation starter, and that painting would draw the eye. Focus! We're here for one thing only. The world's largest diamond. Okay, fine. But what are we even going to do with a really big diamond? Are you kidding me? What won't we do? Diamonds are the strongest material in the world. Right. But is that even true? Of course it's true. Everyone knows it's true. It's just, there have been some major advancements in man-made materials lately, and how do we even measure the strength of a material? Are you kidding me right now? It's worth looking into. Who said that? Oh, it's me. The guard. I woke up because I had to pee. By the way, you're both under arrest. This is part two in our series, Prove It, How to Find the Facts. If you haven't heard part one, you might want to check your feed and start there. Okay. Here we go. How can we deflate what we declare? Theorize and test for errors. What if what we say feels right? Okay, sure, but let's just shine a light. We can prove it. We can prove it. Let's check the facts and prove it. We can prove it. We can prove it. Let's check the facts and prove it. Prove it! This is Brains On. I'm Molly Bloom, and my co-host for this series is 12-year-old Katie from Fairfield, Connecticut. Hi, Katie. Hi. So, Katie, we're talking science today. If you could study any branch of science, which would you choose and why? Well, I really like biology. We learned about it in school now, actually. I really like just studying life. It's cool. It's amazing how Earth can hold so much life when no other planet can. Yeah, it is really amazing. And what do you think science and journalism have in common? Well, I think science and journalism have one major thing in common. They both need to be well-researched, and the information needs to be accurate. And do you think, like, journalists and scientists have some things in common, too? Uh, yeah, they both have to do their research. If, like, you can't do a science experiment if you think plants can't don't need sunlight, Very true. You kind of have to have like a base level of knowledge to get started. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's see how the science stacks up for that claim we heard earlier. We heard this one from listener Finley. Hi, my name is Finley. I am from Malibu, California. I've heard that diamonds are the strongest material in the world. How do we know it's true? Let's bring back our fact-checking buddy, Linda Q from the New York Times. Hi, Linda. Hello. Hi. Are diamonds the strongest material on Earth? So we used to think that that was true until 2015 when scientists uh, 
made a new material out of carbon, which is the same thing that diamonds are made out of. They call it Q-carbon. It's even harder than diamonds, but other scientists haven't been able to replicate that experiment yet, so it's not certain. So for now, think of it as Q-carbon is challenging diamonds for the top spot, but the results aren't really conclusive. That's really interesting. So the answer is maybe. It might be. (laughs) So how did you go about uh, checking that fact? Right. So um, I just Googled uh, hardest material in the world, and that brought me to a bunch of news write-ups of this 2015 study that came out about Q-carbon. And then I thought, what does that really mean? Um, So I went to this website called The Conversation, and it's where scientists kind of write blog posts describing their areas of expertise. And this guy who studies material sciences wrote up um, a really thorough explanation for what hardness means. And so from there... I learned that like scientists actually have a very specific way of measuring hardness, and this is how we can tell that diamonds are the hardest because they score the top level in, in this measure. And where did you find the information about how no one's been able to replicate the Q-carbon? I couldn't find anything else after 2015 on Q-carbon except for a couple of quotes saying like, this is really interesting. I'm still in, I still want to look into it. So in Google Scholar, which is Google's database for scholarly research, I wasn't able to find any other studies on Q-carbon after 2015. Well, thank you so much, Linda, for checking that fact for us today. Thanks for having me. Science has helped humans find facts about the world for thousands of years, so it only makes sense that we're going to answer this question today. My name is Jade, I'm nine years old, I'm from Sydney, Australia, and my question is how does science work? It's a big question, so we asked some of our scientist friends to help us answer it. And we asked them to do it in ten words or less. That's easy. Think of something new, test it, observe, revise... And repeat. Science works by turning curiosity into knowledge. Science works on the basis of facts, not someone's opinion. Science works by asking questions and designing studies to collect data to answer those questions. Science works to predict the world through a process of asking questions, making observations, and evaluating ideas. Science works with questions and experiments. To me, science is being Sherlock Holmes solving mysteries of all earthly things. Fun! That was Ila Nurbach, Diana Dragomir, Rachel Burks, Graciela Unges, Nick Caruso, Gitanjali Rao, and Emily Snell-Rood. And you can meet all these brilliant scientists in past episodes of Brains On. Head to brainson.org to find them. There's no one magic way to do science. But at its core, science is this. It's a rigorous examination of the world around us. And people were doing this long before we called this science. Back then, we called these people philosophers or naturalists or doctors. But any way you slice it, it was still science. That rigorous examination of the world. What counts as rigorous changes all the time. That's Alex Huey. She's a science historian at Mississippi State University. But even though the exact methods used have changed, science has some basic characteristics. There's repetition, 
you know, someone's doing the same experiment every single day for three years, or they go around the world following different eclipses in order to make observations of eclipses. It has to be replicable, meaning that if a scientist finds something in an experiment, other scientists should be able to recreate it and find the same thing. There's also these qualities of a scientist that make them rigorous, so they're disinterested and they're objective, these kinds of qualities that allow them to think beyond themselves. Science is also about precision. In the 1700s, tools like thermometers, scales, and other instruments of measurement were becoming more exact and consistent. And they've just gotten better and better ever since. Okay, so science is about objectivity, precision, repetition, and curiosity. But it's also about creativity, being able to think about things differently. So let me talk about William Harvey then. Me? Really? Little me? No, what's there to say? He was a British scientist working in the 1600s, so 400 years ago, and he wanted to learn about how our bodies work. Yeah, like what's the deal with blood? Back then, people thought that blood came from the liver. And then just kind of like sloshed around the body until it reached the part where it needed to be and would be absorbed. In my day, we had no fancy machines to see inside bodies. If you wanted to find out what's going on in there, well, you had to cut a body open. And as you can imagine, it's hard to find volunteers. It's actually really hard to observe life without killing it, right? But William Harvey was very curious, and he noticed that this idea of where blood came from and how it worked in the body was old. Yeah, this guy named Galen came up with it like a thousand years before I was even born. Are we really okay just being like, yeah, sure, Galen, blood just sloshes around? Well, I'm not. So one experiment he does involves a man's arm and a piece of fabric. So get this. I tie the fabric tightly above the guy's elbow, and the vein pops out. Blood was stuck there and couldn't get out. And then I could feel the valves in the vein, and when I tried to push the blood around in the veins, it was obvious it could only flow in one direction. And this did not gel with what everyone else was thinking about the way blood worked. If it sloshed all around the body, it wouldn't be stuck in one spot like that. And then there was the snake. He cut a snake open and pinched the blood off above the snake's heart. Um, So the snake is still alive. The heart is still bleeding. Blood is still flowing. And the heart starts to shrink and starts to get pale. And um, it becomes clear to him that this is, this is because it's empty, right? So he's pinched off these, um, the vein above the heart, and it, it's meant that the heart can't fill up with blood. And so it starts to look like a dead heart, like it starts to really slow down and struggle. And so then he lets go of the blood, and it, and it you know, fills up the heart again, and the heart's re-engaged and happy. And then he pinches off the aorta, and the heart becomes filled with blood. In doing this, he... he claims that he has demonstrated that the heart pumps the blood and it circulates through the body. Boom! Major discovery right there. Take that, Galen. That fundamentally changed the way people thought about bodies, right? Thought about their own body and um, thought about the heart. The heart suddenly becomes quite a bit more important. And this is based on these very careful um, set of experiments that he did. And of course, the study of our circulatory systems didn't end there. Scientists after William Harvey kept doing experiments and learning more. The process of science is never done. Scientists are still learning new things about the way our hearts beat. But sometimes experiments fail. And these failures can be just as important as the experiments that go perfectly according to plan. 
We're going to give an example of that in a minute, but first, we're going to do a very non-scientific test, a test of your listening skills. It's the... Here it is. Okay. Any guesses? Well, it sort of sounds like paper being rustled or maybe even toned. Mm-hmm. And do you think what kind of paper that might be? It sounds like paper... It's definitely not book paper. It doesn't sound Mm -hmm. like book paper, but I'm not really sure. Okay. Well, we're going to hear that again a little later, so maybe you'll have a different guess. So keep mulling it over. Want to send us your own mystery sound or maybe a drawing of a scientist at work? Or a question? Go to brainson.org slash contact. It's super easy. Just ask Draco, who sent us this head scratcher. How do snails get your cells? We'll unravel that mystery at the end of the show in the moment of, um... Plus, we'll give a mega-huge, super-loud, full-of-love shout-out to the new members of the Brains Honor Roll. These are the kids who power our podcast with ideas, art, and all-around awesomeness. So stick around with us. You're listening to Brains On. Here's a fact. I'm Molly, and this is Katie. Correct! Okay, so we just heard how rigorous experiments led to people understanding that our blood actually circulates around our bodies. But failed experiments are important, too. Cue dramatic music. It's time for The Sad Tale of the Luminiferous Ether. In the 1800s, scientists thought that this stuff called luminiferous ether was all around us. They thought, Well, if sound waves move through air and waves in water move through water, light needed to move through something, too. And that something was a substance they called the luminiferous ether. It always sounds to me like the best band name, right? The the subtle fluids and the luminiferous ether. Two people who wanted to prove that the luminiferous ether was all around us were Albert Michelson and Edward Morley. They thought they could do this by detecting what they called the ether wind. If there was luminiferous ether all around, you'd be able to detect the ether moving as our planet moved through it. Kind of like feeling the wind moving past a car as it's driving. We'll take it from here, Alex and Molly. Last we left the tale of Albert Michelson and Edward Morley in 1887, the duo were back in the United States after a frustrating trip to Germany. Morley, old friend, it's good to be back in Ohio. Our trip to Germany was disappointing. That's one word for it. But I have not lost hope yet. This instrument, this beautiful, precise tool of detection that we built and designed ourselves will work this time. It will prove the existence of the luminiferous ether once and for all. We will detect the ether wind with this inferometer. Huzzah! I mean, this stuff is everywhere, right? It fills the space around us. It lets light travel through air. At least, that's what everyone thinks. I mean... We didn't detect it in Germany, but we have made the detector more precise, and this time, this time, it will succeed. Our names will be listed alongside Sir Isaac Newton. Cheers to that! Commence the experiment! That's the sound of time passing, of science happening. 
Morley, old friend? Yes, Michelson, old chum. The result? Yes? It's not there. The luminiferous ether? It's not there. But what is there? What will their fellow scientists say? What will happen next? What is all around us if it's not luminiferous ether? So when they repeated the experiment in Ohio, I think that at this point, people were paying attention. And I think there was an understanding that this was an elegant experiment. The design was great. The precision was top-notch. And if they weren't finding it, then yeah, maybe it wasn't there. So they had to admit they were wrong. It sort of blew up the way they and other physicists thought about the world. But scientists at the time weren't bitter or upset or sitting around saying, oh, no. I think it was it was more of a like, oh, wow, like, look at the whole new set of possibilities this this opens up. And, you know, in some ways, this freed physicists especially to, to think about the world differently. Soon enough, scientists came up with new ideas about how light traveled. And many of these ideas were confirmed by experiments. So even if a particular experiment fails, science is still working. And scientists are constantly replacing old ideas with new ones that help paint a more complete picture of how the world works. We've heard some examples of how science worked in history. And now it's time to hear from a scientist working today. Or better yet, two scientists. Our pal Sandin spoke with a pair of researchers in a new and exciting field. He'll take it from here. Even today, scientists are making discoveries that are changing how we see the world and ourselves. So I am Regina Joyce Cordy. Okay, so my name is Mona Desari. And I am an assistant professor at Wake Forest University. And I am a PhD candidate at the University of Notre Dame. Regina and Mona study something called the microbiome. So the microbiome is the word we use to talk about the world of microbes. Microbes, which would be sort of like the bacteria and other very, very, very small organisms. Tiny living creatures. You can't even see with the naked eye. That live all around us. They live on our skin, inside of our mouths, inside of our gut, so our stomach and the organs associated with digestion. Most of them don't actually do anything to us, but many of them do help us. For a long time, people mostly thought of bacteria as something that can spread from person to person and cause harm. You know, they'd infect us and make us sick. Blech, no thanks. But around 10 or so years ago, scientists started using a new tool called a DNA sequencer. Now, DNA is this complex molecule found in living things, and each living thing's DNA is unique. So this DNA sequencer can analyze all the different strands of DNA in a sample— and tell you what life forms are in it. So researchers used this tool to study the bodies of healthy people. And they found that these people weren't alone. They were full of trillions of these little bacteria called microbes. And a lot of these microbes weren't bad. They were actually helpful. 
They are very involved in our digestion. Imagine you've eaten a burger. Your burger is going down your stomach. All of your stomach juices are all over it, but there are also all these tiny creatures on top of it. Bacteria and other very, very small microscopic organisms that are taking all of the pieces of the burger apart. And so they can actually help us to process the food that we're eating and extract nutrients from it. Specific microbes that are taking the bun apart, other microbes are taking apart the meat, as well as some that are just focused on the lettuce. And sometimes they can actually produce vitamins that are actually then soaked up by the human body. And altogether, this helps us have a more productive digestive system. These microbes also seem to influence our mood and some even fight off the bad bacteria to keep us healthy. Both Mona and Regina do research to learn more about the microbiome. Regina has been gathering samples of different bacteria from Boston subways, which, yeah, sounds totally yuck. But it turns out most of the samples had the same kind of microbes we'd find on our skin or in our homes. Nothing too alarming which is a huge relief. I think it is a relief, you know? I think that it's very difficult for people to separate these out. Like they can hear you say, you know, we found bacteria, and I think immediately jump to thinking that it's something dangerous. Mona wants to know how this collection of microbes living in us changes as we age. But it's hard to study people because, you know, we take a really long time to age. So instead, she joined a project that studies baboons in Kenya. So we follow about 500 baboons every day of the year, except Sundays and Christmas. If we see them leave a sample, um, so if they poop, um, we'll identify it and then collect it. Those poops are clues. Stinky, important clues. You see, they contain all kinds of information about the microbes inside the baboons. Mona can study the poop from a baboon when it was younger, and then again later when it's old, to see how the samples changed. Mona and Regina will write about their findings and share them so other scientists can learn from the results and ask new questions. Maybe the science will help us develop new medicines or find new ways to measure our health. Or maybe it'll help us discover something totally unexpected that will once again change how we see the world. If that happens, you can bet scientists like Mona Desari and Regina Joyce Cordy will study that too. Okay, we've waited long enough. Let's find out the mystery behind the mystery sound. Before the big reveal, let's hear it one more time. All right. Any final guesses? It's definitely paper, but I'm not sure which kind. What kind of paper might it sound like? Just think about the kinds of paper in your life. Hmm. It sounds like copy paper or printer paper. Hmm. Excellent guess. Well, here is the answer. That was the sound of pages being turned in a newspaper. My name's Christine Ha, and I'm the managing production editor at the Minnesota Daily, which is the University of Minnesota's student-run paper. So I have to ask you, Katie, do you actually read a physical newspaper, or do you read it online? I read it online. So you're probably not super familiar with newspaper sound, then. Yeah. (laughs) Because, like, that newspaper paper is, like, a very specific kind of paper, and it does make a very loud sound 
when you turn the pages. Yep, pretty loud. (laughs) Christine's job is to decide the layout of the newspaper. So like which article goes on which page and what picture goes where. And then we usually rank the stories, like like what should be in the front, what should be in the back, because the front and back are the pages that people tend to look at. And then from there, like how we design it to make it appealing is we put really big pictures because pictures draw the eye. And we also put more important things towards the top. Christine thinks of all the writing in the world, journalism is the most important. When it's done well, it helps people understand their world and make smart decisions. People really go into journalism because they have a passion to tell the truth and to give people the correct information and like make change and understand what's going on. In our next episode, we're diving deep into the world of newspapers and journalism. How do journalists go about finding facts? And how do they do their jobs? I can see the headline now. Scrappy little podcast blows the lid off the world of news. Exactly. There's not just one way to do science, but there is a core to the work that the scientists do. They gather evidence to test ideas in a way that is replicable, precise, and objective. Science is constantly testing what we already know to find new knowledge. And sometimes this means old ways of thinking are replaced with new ones. That's it for this episode of Brains On. Brains On is produced by Molly Bloom, Mark Sanchez, and Sandin Totten. We had production help today from Natalie Brickstriker and Emily Bright, engineering help from Veronica Rodriguez, Anthony Craven, and Eric Stromstad, and many thanks to Megan Reddy, Andrew Stevenson, Anna Weggel, Jonathan Blakely, Eric Ringham, Curtis Gilbert, Sam Chu, and Max Nesterak. And Brains On is supported in part by funding from the National Science Foundation. We're a nonprofit public radio production, and donations from our listeners help us keep making new episodes. If you are interested in supporting Brains On, you can head to brainson.org slash donate. You can find more episodes of Brains On at brainson.org. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at brains underscore on. And if you have a question, mystery sound, drawing, or high five to share, head to brainson.org slash contact. Now, before we go, it's time for a moment of um. My name is Draco, and I am from Newway, California. And my question is, how do snails get their cells? You know how we see like little videos of hermit crabs moving from one shell to another because they don't make their own? Snails, their shell, they make it themselves and they're physically attached to it. And it gets bigger as they get bigger. My name is Skylar Bear and I study reproduction in marine animals and I live in Maine. There are lots of different kinds of snails. And a lot of snails often lay an egg sac where the snails, the baby snails, develop and they go through all these stages before they crawl away. And when they crawl away, they have a little shell on them. Um, Some species actually have them hatch after only a few days. They're in a larval stage, it's sort of a baby stage, um, called a villager. And they don't quite look like a little snail. They don't have a full shell. It sort of looks like a glass slipper or bowl. Um, and it's very thin. They gather calcium carbonate from what they eat to make it harder. It really depends on the species and where they live and their, their habitat and what's sort of useful, what's their lifestyle choice, and that influences sort of how their shell grows and all of that.
I was born ready to read this list of names. It's time for the Brains Honor Roll. These are the amazing listeners who share their intelligence and ideas with us. Here they are. Amy from Green River, Wyoming, Xander from Boston, Jack from Redmond, Washington, Paula from Montgomery Village, Maryland, Lauren from Hopewell, Illinois, Alex and Aida from Vancouver, Nora from San Jose, California, Tyler and Gavin from Oswego, Illinois, Helena and Alex from Houston, Kira and Sophia from Davis, California, Kate and Jack from Newburyport, Massachusetts, Isaac from Lafayette, Louisiana, Jack from Warrington, Virginia, Matthew from Denver, Anna and Tate from Greer, South Carolina, Taz from Mount Lake Terrace, Washington, Sophia from Queensland, Australia, Joseph from Houston, Christopher and Caroline from Zurich, Switzerland, Violet and Lucy from Beechwood, New Jersey, Alita from Oakland, California, Henry from Florence, Massachusetts, Luca and Anya from Los Angeles, Emmy Lou from Sydney, Australia, Nehemiah from Charlotte, North Carolina, Swapnil from Savoy, Illinois, Micah from Silver Spring, Maryland, Audrey and Oscar from Denver, Stella, Henry and Kate from Ogden, Utah, Isaac, Isaiah and Birdie from Nairobi, Kenya, Sophia and Lotus from Pittsburgh, Miles from Chicago, Fiona from Cork, Ireland, Hazel and Russell from San Francisco, Nayani and Keith. Dion from Miami, Max from Atlanta, E from Pennsylvania, Nathan and Hannah from Dallas, Caitlin from Honolulu, Stephen from San Anselmo, California, and Django and Milo from Santa Rosa, California. We'll be back next week with more answers to your questions. Thanks for listening.